Heavenly Father, we just pray uh, for our dear uh, Pastor Gunner that you would encourage him, and we pray um, on his behalf that utterance may be given to him in the opening of his mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And we pray you'd open hearts to receive that, um, and also just give us your word this morning for whatever cause and purpose you would have, Lord. You, you, just, you know the curriculum that you've brought each of us, each of these people, through this week and even this year to prepare their hearts to hear the truth that you want to present now so they'll be real and alive. So would you do that? Because that's what you do. And we give all glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are, um, this is our last visit to the book of Ephesians. Uh, I hope we go back to it eventually. It's, I, I think if we do it one more time, we'll get it. You know? <laughs> So we're in Ephesians 6, uh, cha- chapter, or, excuse me, uh, chapter, say it again, chapter 6, verses 18 through 24. Uh, read with me, if you will. <clears throat> with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I'm doing. Tychius, my beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace. Be with the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Heavenly Father, do open our hearts and minds to your word this morning. It is your word, not ours. We trust you with it. Get a return, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Gunnar and I were talking about this. I'll tell you some of the secret conversations that happen between behind the scenes at our church. Uh, Gunnar and I were talking about the preaching calendar, and it's already been kind of set. James knows when he's preaching. I know when I'm preaching, and Gunnar certainly uh, knows when he's preaching. And he said, John, um, I'm really considering just last week just finishing the book out, and just I'll just throw this in as, as an add-on. And it's kind of, you know, I'm glad he decided not to do that for two reasons. One is that you saw how he was pressed for time last week. Uh, it was a lovely passage, the armor of God. It was great. And then the other is if he would have finished this, um, I would have been stuck with uh, Genesis 38, which I have sworn never to preach. So, um, and you can read that at home yourself, and you'll see why. And so I leave that to him to figure out what he wants to do with that. Um, lovely section of the Bible. So let's just jump in. I am grateful for the privilege of teaching this passage today, um, and really for doing the wrap-up of Ephesians. And especially because if, if you think way back to or, or, uh, late April, um, I got to introduce us to the book of Ephesians before Gunnar um, ran with it. Now, in outlining a book of the Bible, it's really common to look at the opening verses and simply call that uh, the uh, introduction or greetings. And it's good. And then the closing verses, they typically call that something like uh, conclusion or concluding remarks. And that's fine. That's an outline. There's nothing wrong with that. Functionally, that is accurate. Um, but it may lead some to minimize the overall value of what's being said. And we don't, we don't want to do that with the Ephesians. Uh, this book, the whole book, is, is valuable. It's valuable. Uh, it's, it's imperative, really. And you've heard it said many times that this week's passage is not a standalone passage. It fits 
uh, with the entirety of the entire book and then the entirety of the whole Bible. So it's not my intention to try to over-spiritualize some simply simple closing remarks. I'm not going to give a hyper-spiritual, you know, impactful kind of thing. I'm not going to try to to bump it up. But what I would like to draw your attention to the overall pattern of Ephesians, and then hopefully how the end of the book perhaps even climaxes uh, the overall overarching teaching of the whole book. That's what I intend to do today. We'll see if that works. Now, uh, towards the end of April of this year, we entered the study. And I, I remember what I said because I write this stuff down. I said this to you. Here's what I said. In my preparation, I was struck with the difficulty of establishing a single theme for the book. I can't give you a single sentence summary of its teaching. And that's a good thing. You see, the information given in Ephesians, the truths put forward, are meant to be deeply personal and life-changing. It's God's intention that the book actually permeates into us, not simply into our minds, but into the depths of our very being. So, how has that worked out for you? You've been through the book. Has it done that? And I suspect some are saying yes, some are saying maybe not, some are saying I sometimes yes and sometimes no. We're people. I quoted John McKay's findings, old dead guy. I like to quote the dead guys. Uh, John McKay, when he wrote, when he, uh, in his, his uh, nighttime writings, people used to keep, um, they used to keep uh, uh, diaries or, what's another word for it? Journals, right? I'm a cop. I don't do that because people serve search warrants and they find stuff. But um, he's, in his journal, he wrote about Ephesians. He said, he said, I had been quickened. I was really alive. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. And what John McKay uh, was actually given testimony to was the, the energizing power of God within his life and his heart that had drawn him to an understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus had done, and that not simply in a generic way, but in a very personal, saving terms in his own life and the glorious blessings that he had entered into when he, John McKay, entered into Christ's life and Christ entered into his. He was excited. He was blessed. It was life-changing. And that blessed my socks off because I want the same thing. I want the same thing. And at the outset of this journey, um, we dangled this carrot. We dangled this very carrot. We said that this book of Ephesians contains information needed so that we too might find true life, abundant life. No, the super substantial abundant life spoken of by Jesus when he said in John 10.10, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. That is a great promise of Jesus. And that life is to be in the here and now, not when we finally get to heaven. So thinking back to the beginning, Paul wrote this, starting in Ephesians 1. He wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to the adoption of the sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory and his grace, in which he freely bestowed in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. It is impossible to miss the past and present tense of the glorious blessings that he's put on us. It's not just when we all get to heaven what a day of rejoicing that will be. 
Um, these things are things we have now, according to God's word. This is our present state. This, this, yes, this, this, this super substantial abundant life offered by Jesus is meant to be a present tense experience. But you already know, you already know the challenges with that, don't you? And that experience, not at the exclusion of your day-to-day struggles, but that fully in the midst of the present drudgeries of this life. That's what he offers. That's the expectation. That's the carrot that God dangles before us. So, as we capstone this book, how has it impacted you? Has it done what it said? Has it really done that? Well, let's talk about it. Can you say with John McKay that you had been you had been quickened? You are really alive. Jesus Christ has become the center of everything. There you go. So I admitted to you then, and I still hold to this, that my present Christian experience is not always characterized by being really alive. Nor can I always say that to me Jesus is the center of everything. 24 7, 365. But I can say, as I believe you can say, that I want to be really alive. In my deepest self, I would like to experience the surpassing value, the benefit, the reality of Jesus Christ being at the center of everything. And so we've now been through Ephesians. What exactly is the reason that we frequently fail to thrive? the way that John McKay expressed in his journal. And I've both struggled through this issue and wrestled with this issue for the last 42 years of my Christian experience. And I've seen a common thread that ties together most of my spiritual failures. More on that later. Now, Pastor Gunner, I think, nailed it last week when he said, this idea of battlefield battlefield language is throughout the Bible. Go figure Gunner's wired for that. Gunner showed us that battlefield language was consistent with the teaching of Jesus. Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. And it was consistent with Paul. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And we could add to that the final battle scene out of Revelation 19. The battlefield language is all there. And last week, Gunner walked us through the articles of the armor of God. It's a great passage. That is a, it's a very visual passage. Did he, did he show you overheads and did it make it Roman people or is it him? Both. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so early in my Christian journey, I was encouraged to memorize those articles. It was an exercise that was very common. Uh, if you followed navigators like I used to back then, um, uh, I was encouraged. In, in, in his teaching on spiritual warfare, Charles Stanley, um, actually suggests that a Christian every day go through the verbal motions of dressing the, with the articles before they go to work. You know, Lord, I shod my feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I put on the helmet of salvation. I go through that. And I, and I think that's a good practice. But that said, the practice of dressing oneself in the armor of God is premature if we're not first equipped with the truths found in Ephesians 1 through 5, the verses that come before chapter 6. And this is why Pastor Gunner teaches through books of the Bible systematically, uh, from start to finish, rather than jumping just to the exciting portions that seem to really you know, flare up and we can hold on to and wave a flag. 
Um, we need the foundations if we are to, in a victorious manner, live that super substantial abundant life offered by Jesus. And Gunnard pointed out that the foundational, um, the foundational truths of Christianity are actually built into the armor of God, aren't they? The, uh, the belt of truth. And he talked about the truths of the Bible, um, the breastplate of righteousness. You got that from Ephesians 1, that God has put his righteousness on us. The helmet of salvation, save, save, truly save. No one's going to take that away. He spoke of the, um, and so these things are there, but they're there before we ever start yielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The foundations are vitally important. Amen? So many Christians enter the Christian life in the same way that... Um, one of my young soldiers entered advanced pathfinder school. I won't give his name because he's still active duty. Uh, military pathfinders are, are responsible for establishing uh, drop zones for units that either parachute or helicopter in to uh, combat operations. And, and our young soldier, a pathfinder, uh, quickly uh, realized that this advanced pathfinder school uh, was for those who had actually already been to jump school. It was a parachuting school. He had not. And understand, being in the infantry, they never say quit. So he started packing his parachute, and all the guys, they knew he's National Guard, so they, they could tell he wasn't very good, but they helped him out. His buddies helped him pack the parachute, and they helped him get the parachute on, and they helped him walk through the door, and they helped him hook up and step through the door, all never realizing he'd never been to jump school, and then he jumped. And yes, uh, he didn't break any bones. It, it worked out pretty good for him. It was kind of cool. Um, but we don't want to navigate our spiritual warfare in that way. Ephesians 1 through 5 gave us information we must appropriate, information that really should permeate us before jumping into the battle. So remember what we've learned. Just a few points here. I'm going to run you right through them. I like to review them. I'm just weird that way. Uh, Ephesians 1, uh, uh, 1 through 6 is it this way. Here's the truth. We are chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him, and we are predestined to adoption through Jesus Christ. Cool. One uh, thirteen. we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. Great. Ephesians one fifteen. Jesus' powerful working in you and through you is best displayed within the context of his body, the church. We all need to be active participants in our local church. Uh, 2.10, for we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 2.18, we have access to the Father. Wow. 3.13, tribulations are for your glory. Good to know. 3.19, we can know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, and you may be filled up to the fullness of all of God. And these are great foundational truths, things you need to know before being in the battle. There are so many more. And, and don't forget, uh, these truths are given to us before we ever are asked to modify any behaviors. These are truths before God ever tells you to do this instead of that. He gives us these beautiful truths. So it's noteworthy that early in chapter 4, we are told to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. The word unity implies group, not a solo individual. Spiritual warfare is not meant to be undertaken alone. The whole chapter of uh, the whole cha- of chapter four expands the necessity of the church as the found as foundational in your spiritual journey. Now, in the same way, our spiritual walk should never outrun 
our relational or familial responsibilities. We are to focus on spiritually nurturing our families as a priority over jumping into the drop zone of spiritual warfare in the world. And that summarizes chapter 5 for you. And with all that foundation, we enter chapter 6. We're going to dress us in the armor of God. Are you with me? I've caught you up through the book. Now with that, let me circle back to my earlier observation. I've seen a common thread that ties together most of my spiritual failures, and perhaps you'll identify with this too. I am prone to fail when I fail to enter the battle. I am prone to fail when I fail to enter the battle. On the day you put your trust in Jesus Christ, the battle, you, you entered the battleground on the winning side. You're in the battle. The battle rages on. But it's still possible for an individual to choose to ignore the battle and focus on other interests. If we are to experience the daily, uh, benefit, the daily benefits of our position in Christ, we must daily be active participants in the warfare that rages around us. It's a daily choice. It's like, it's like swimming in a river. When I am active in this, I connect with God in intimate ways. When I am passive about this, I just float downstream. You don't just stay put. You're in a moving river. You're in a battle. I am prone to fail when I fail to fight in the battle. And I suspect that many of us can look back at times of spiritual failure and see that these failures came not when we were actively sharing the gospel or gathering with the church, but when we had given ourselves permission to take a little break. When I was teaching the D.A.R.E. program many years ago, I saw that the number one time for kids to begin uh, to enter the gateway activities, pathways that lead towards abusive drugs and alcohol, was during off-school breaks, when there was nothing really to do. The old saying rings true, idle hands are the devil's workshop. And candidly, this is why our adult Sunday school does not break for the summer. The Sunday school teacher is afraid of taking breaks. True, too, for the person who travels for work, as well as the spouse that stays home while the other is traveling uh, for work. These are classic scenarios for the entry of the schemes of the devil. Alone, away, not accountable. We are prone to fail when we fail to fight the battle. And this is exactly what we saw in the life of King David. Remember King David? I'll read it. 2 Samuel 11. Love this. This is so good. You can read this later for you. 2 Samuel 11. It's so eloquent the way they put this. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to the battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Amnon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And you know the rest of the story. If not, read it later. But he wasn't out at the battle, and it opened the door to temptation. Okay, we've laid a foundation. Now let's enter the passage that we're going to teach you today. Now last week, we dressed for battle. This week, we're going to enter the battle. 
uh, verse 18, 618, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Paul tells us to be on the alert with all perseverance. That means enter the battle. Open your eyes to what's going on around you and realize you are in a battle and all perseverance don't quit. I so wish, as many of you do, that we could be like the old prophet and say, Lord, open our eyes to the battle around us and we would see what's really going on out there around us and in this building. The battle's going on. The expectation of Paul is that those who have been given the unspeakable blessings would willingly and intelligently participate in the battle of the ages. He's saying, do it, get involved. But, but, but look at the how we are to battle. Look at the how. Again, verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times. In case you missed it. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times. Okay, my feeling, not yours. My feeling. That's it? You, you've baited me with a super substantial abundant life? You've, you've led me to believe I can experience the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? Uh, I'm on the edge of my seat listening for the secret of the victorious life, and all you're going to give me is, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times? Yes. Yes. And it's no surprise that in this have-it-your-own-way church culture, this may not seem very interesting, let alone satisfying to Generation Xbox. Pray? But make no mistake, the battlefield is not in pouring your energy into lobbying for legislation or in getting the right candidate postured, nor is it limited to opportunities for evil in the isolation of your hotel room or in your private search engines. Paul says, 612, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And add to that, 2 Corinthians 10.3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience, the obedience of Christ. The battlefield is all around us. And praying at all times is divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. It's the real deal. It really is the real thing. And Gunnar pointed out last week that the gates of hell shall not prevail is talking about the gospel not being overtaken, or the, uh, the, it's talking about the gospel overtaking the strongholds of Satan. It's, it's forward moving. It's not defensive. If your Christian expectation is centered on your abundant life and your victorious life and your personal healing, you will never acquire those things which you focus upon. Let me say it again. If your Christian experience, expectation is centered on simply on your abundant life 
and your victorious life and your personal healing, you will never acquire those things on which you focus. Now let me be clear. There are many good and legitimate reasons to turn your life over to Christ. I don't want to go to hell. Valid. I want to go to heaven. Valid. My life is a wreck and I need rescue. Valid. Turn to Jesus. I want to get rid of my guilt. Valid. God is worthy. Valid. There's a lot of things that draw different people to Jesus. They're all valid. But God, but rescue from those reasons is not God's ultimate purpose for us. Now, God is not a spiritual grocery store where we kind of walk in and and we pick and choose off the shelf the items that appeal to us, leaving the rest on the shelf. The crucified life, the call of every believer, is a total package. Uh, He says it this way in Galatians 2, you know this one, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. My death, his life. His death, my life. Yes, over time, God will address the issues that drew you to him. He will address your challenges and all these things that drew you to him. But that happens best when we're in fo- and when we are involved actively in his warfare against his targets and on his terms. So, you want victory and healing and purpose? Then, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times. Be involved in the battle. Now, who knows the reality of this truth? Where's my prayer warriors? Where are you? Don't, if you're, you shouldn't be ashamed of your prayer warrior. You can, you can identify. Yeah, that's not unhumble or anything. Sometimes we have to be knocked down, though, a few notches in order to activate this reality. It's just the way it goes. Uh, God has to knock us off the throne and put himself on. I was at a cop school uh, earlier this month, advanced interview and interrogation. Does that sound cool? Yeah. And the guy who was teaching it was a, he was a professor of psychology attached for the last 25 years to the high-value target interrogation team post-9-11. So he'd been around and seen some things. He knew some stuff. The material was, was interesting, but, but still, it, it was quickly noticeable to me that as I looked around, almost all the students were between like 25 and 35 years old. I wasn't being invited to lunches or to after-school activities. I mean, I'm old, okay? It was evident. And that's fine, but, you know, by day three, I wasn't really connecting with any of the diamonds in the rough. Lord, why am I here? Who's the target? I, it just wasn't happening. And that's Okay. And I began to wonder what my spiritual purpose was in that environment. So I was at the room preparing to preach this passage and some other passages. And I began to personalize this verse for myself. I know it sounds selfish, but it works. And I said, okay, Lord, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterances may be given to me in opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And if I were to have opportunity for the gospel, God was going to have to bring it about. I was just out of school. And then, funny thing, no less than three times I get a text message from Gunner, I'm praying for you. Like, do you do that? Yeah, he does. Okay. Well, I'm sitting alone at lunch the last day, outside waiting for the class to start, when the professor of the class comes over and for the first time he says, can I sit with you? Sure. 
Ultimately, he asked the question. He asked the question. He's, he qualifies this, that, that he's an evolutionist, and that he could easily connect the journey of the psychological development of man to an evolutionary model with one exception. So he asked me, he says, let me ask you this then. Am I being set up or what? Let me ask you, he says, in the Bible, in Genesis, doesn't it say something like that when man sinned, then they were ashamed? Is that the origin of shame? I said, yeah, sounds, sounds pretty good. I, that's probably true. He says, because this is my problem. This is my problem. I'm an evolutionary psychologist. I can't reconcile from an evolutionary model the origin of sin and shame. And that should have died out by my model, but it seems to be getting worse and worse. And then he says, I spend a lot of time thinking about this. And I gave him the briefest gospel presentation that I could at the moment. And his reply was great. He says, well, that would be hard for me. Interesting conversation, right? So just as pride can keep us out of the kingdom, pride can lead us to battle on our own terms rather than on God's terms. And God says, pray. We are prone to fail when we fail to fight the battle on God's terms. And this then should be every one of our prayers for ourselves and for others, that utterances may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Now, the NIV actually says this probably a little bit better. Uh, Here's NIV. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Now, I'm a really big believer that uh, every Christian should, should have a clear, ready-to-go gospel presentation. Like, you have a, a gospel plan laid out in your mind to present to somebody in a perfect environment. I, I think everybody should have that. But there are times when that presentation will need to be morphed for the need of the moment. And, and ultimately, that person's salvation journey belongs to the Lord. But it is a privilege to have a part in it. And note also Paul's dependence on the church as part of his mission. Uh, Paul depended on the prayers of the church in carrying out the gospel-given mission. Here's what he said. Note note Paul's attitude, how Paul sees himself. He says, uh, verse uh, 19 and following, the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador. The mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador. Paul is an ambassador for the gospel of Christ. Paul recognizes, Paul sees himself, Paul identifies as an ambassador. How do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? Identity seems to be the buzzword of the year. Uh, How do you identify yourself? Is it consistent with the way that God identifies you? This then gets back to the belt of truth. Regardless of the truth, if you misidentify you will fail to enter the battle. Yes, you may battle, but it won't be on God's battleground. Everybody seems to want to fight. Especially, I was watching, I was watching Valley Center's safest drivers yesterday shaking fists at each other. Yeah, never mind. Okay, so how does God, God identify? God identifies you as 
chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That's your identity. Holy and blameless in his sight. That's your identity. God identifies you as his adopted child. God identifies you as his ambassador for the gospel in this world. That's your identity. You can choose to put on the armor or not put on the armor. That's your identity. That is your identity in Christ. Still, many of us go for decades without accepting our identity. But John, you don't know my circumstances. I'm not in a position to be God's ambassador. And some of you are in tough positions. Tough positions. Again, Paul, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Paul's circumstances did not dictate Paul's position. In chains or out of chains, Paul was an ambassador for the gospel. And this is no small thing. After John the Baptist did his work, they threw him in prison. And John the Baptist, I believe, went through some real difficulties in there. He was shaken up. His entire world was gone topsy-turvy because he had done these things for the cause of Messiah, and, and he's in prison. He was discouraged. Had it all been for nothing? And so he asks in Matthew 11, he says, now when John, while in prison, heard the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? What was John's words when he first came on the scene? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was not in doubt. But look at him in prison here in a, in a tough circumstance. Are you the one? Or should we look for another? Oh, I've heard. Boy, what he went through. And Jesus answered him. Jesus didn't go to him. Jesus answered him. And he says, and by the way, this is contextualization here. Never mind. He says, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Ah, I know those verses. You're the Messiah. Thank you. Listen, we are human. There are circumstances that can rock our world and cause us to question everything that we thought we knew. But the belt of truth, real truth, is that which will keep us from tripping over our perceived defeats. You're in the battle. And again, circumstances and setbacks do not determine the reality of our position. Moreover, your positioning in this world, gives you access for the sake of the gospel to places that somebody else can't go. Hence, God has secreted his ambassadors in jails and prisons, in classrooms and teachers' lounges, in hospitals and on campuses, on ships and in tents in the desert, on fire trucks, at playgrounds, in the highest level of government, and in the forgotten hallways of convalescent homes. In any and every circumstance, we are ambassadors for Christ. That is our identity. Now, how are you living up to your true identity? How's it going? Well, I have to admit, sometimes good and sometimes not so good. What can I do? Well, again, we come back to the threads that have held us 
together in this book. The first thread in this book is that the truth or truths of who we are in Christ and, and, and what God has done for us. But the book showcases a second imperative thread that holds it all together, and that thread is called the church. You can't miss it from start to finish in this book. The church, the church, the church. Uh, look, um, but verse 21, but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Tychius, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. In the midst of the battle, in the midst of prison, when Paul's resources are limited, Paul reduces his force by at least one. Rather than clinging to his companion Tychius, Paul sends Tychius on a special mission for the encouragement of the church, yes, but also to muster the church to pray, uh, to pray for Paul in order that he would have a more effective ministry in chains. I mean, he car- uh, Tychius carried this book to them. And what does the book say? Pray for me! Paul is mustering the church to pray on his behalf for effectiveness in the gospel. Not for his release from prison, not for the change of circumstances, but for a powerful work. Paul knew we are prone to fail when we fail to enter the battle surrounded by the church. And many of us have to admit, we've been these Christian lone rangers. We've been Rambo. Rambo don't work. I won't speak for Navy SEALs because I ain't one. But if Gunner were here, he'd tell you that when a, a team of SEALs goes out, there's hundreds of support people behind them that you never see. It's not them alone. We are prone to fail when we fail to enter the battle surrounded by the church. One commentator said it this way. I won't, I won't name them because they don't matter, I guess. But here's what he says. And the battle is real. And so, when we come together, this is a time for us to rally together with one another. It's a time for us to encourage one another. It's not a time for us to be phony, to act like everything's okay. And so often we approach people and say, how are you? And we don't necessarily want the answer. Rather, after the firefight, we should be saying, how are you medically? And how are you on ammo? You know that commentator is? That's Gunner. That's Gunner. Don't you listen to what he says? Ephesians makes it abundantly clear that these people, the church, are meant to be an imperative part in your participation in the battlefield of the gospel. And I beat on this over and over because the book does. It does this to us over and over. Both externally and internally, your battles are best fought with the church in, around, and through you. You are part of a team. You are not an independent warrior. I belong to you. You belong to me. I am part of you. You are part of me. In the words of this professor of uh, psychology, but that would be hard for me. Amen? Yeah. It is hard for a person who has been programmed with this world's upside-down perspective to accept the truths that God loves you and he has elevated you in monumental ways. That's hard. It's harder still to embrace that these people sitting around you are imperative to your personal growth, to your personal healing, and to your personal victory in accomplishing of the mission that God has given you to do. Still, in these God-given truths, we find verse 23, peace 
be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sure, I accept that these things may be instrumental in my journey to peace. But it's, it's going to take a lot, or it's going to take a lot of grace for me to embrace these things. It's going to take a lot of grace to open myself up so I'm involved in the church. And so Paul says in 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. What is incorruptible love? Why is there an adjective attached to love? Is this conditional? If, if my love does not endure, I don't get grace? No, that's not what's going on here. An incorruptible love is that quality of love, that, that depth of love, the kind of love that causes you to marry the one girl when you only dated the others. That's incorruptible love. Incorruptible love is the love of, uh, the love of the one who puts their trust in Jesus Christ in the first place. It's the person who is not playing at church and playing at religion. They love Jesus. So this book, this warfare, these truths, these weapons are exclusively for those who have accepted God's free gift of salvation. And maybe you're listening today and and you've wrestled with these concepts for a long time. I've been thinking about this for a long time. You've seen church and you concluded that they're a bunch of broken people who offer no real help for what ails you. And, and, and you wouldn't, and you would be partially correct. But God knows exactly what a mess you've made of your life. And he knows the doubts with which you struggle. And he alone has true answers and real answers. So perhaps you're getting older and you've begun to question the value of the things for which you've been fighting all your life. What was the meaning of it all? Well, you're in the right place. The battle is real. And you have a place in the battle either as a friend or as a foe. Jesus died for your sins and paid the penalty of your sins so that you can, by putting your trust in him, you can enter into the battle on the friendly side, on the winning side, no longer as the enemy of God. Okay, Gunner likes the so what. So what? What do we do with this? James, you like so what also, right? Okay, so what? Christian, you know who you are. Christian, which of the the positional truths stated in this book do you have a hard time embracing? Which ones are hard for you? Adopted? Blessed? Chosen? Predestined? Redemption? Forgiveness? Sealed with the Spirit? An imperishable inheritance? Which ones are hard for you? And are you ready to see yourself as an ambassador rather than a victim? What hinders you from opening yourself to this church body for God's glory and your own good. And where has God specially deposited you as his ambassador? I mean, who will you enlist as prayer partners so that you may bust open the gates of the stronghold wherever God has positioned you? Places that I can't go, you have access to. Okay, for the person who is somewhere along the road in the journey toward faith. How have you seen the hand of God draw you again and again back towards the battle? I've been thinking about this for a long time. What makes it hard for you to embrace Jesus 
as your Savior and Lord. And will you lower your pride and renounce your fear and give yourself to Christ today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed by the simplicity and the complexity of your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you wrote a book. So, Father, would you make these truths alive to us? Your truths are still true. We don't have a separate truth. But would you take away the things that hinder us from fully submitting to entry into the battle on your terms? with your weapons. Make us people of prayer. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.